all the way through. So if you just would stick with me for about, foof, like 26 verses. I don't know, I think a little bit more. I'm not too good at math, but we are going to start in verse 10 because I went through 1 through um, 9 last week. So if you're there, can you please say amen? Amen. Amen. Okay. So it says this, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he is a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for the fear of the Jews. But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carries out the law? Why did you seek to kill me? Or why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who seeks to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed and you all marvel. For this reason, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and on the Sabbath you circumcise a man. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses would not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? Look, he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those than this this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore, Jesus said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is the statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stood out and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed him in were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Woo! All right. Lord, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Like you just said right here, those who believe in you receive your Holy Spirit, Lord. And so I pray tonight, God, that you would open our eyes to your word and to your truth and to your love for us, Lord God. I pray that you would direct my words and, um, and I pray that you would direct this message in whichever way you want it to go. God, I just pray that tonight that we would be encouraged and we would just, like Pastor Steve just said, fall more and more and more in love with you. And so we pray these things. I ask these things, Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So three weeks ago, Josh Beale taught on the cost of discipleship. I want to begin by saying that oftentimes, the cost of discipleship becomes more than we ever counted it to be. Right? Like it's more than we ever, it's never up front. I've seen this within my own life. And it wasn't something that happened overnight. But it was over time, I began to see that it was my life for his life. Right? Life for life. And this happened kind of on a gradual scale. And not just a piece of my life. But he wanted the entire thing. Right? Like the Bible rarely paints this picture where people come to God with their terms and agreements like, hey, this is what I want to continue doing. This is, what I wanna, this is what I want my life to look like. If you would just sign here, Jesus, then I'll follow you. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must pick up his cross and deny himself. You see, if Jesus was painting a picture, the cross was a picture of death. It was a picture of someone dying for the purpose of that someone gaining. You see, Jesus always taught his disciples that the way up is down. And if they wanted to know what true life was, they would have to forsake their own. You want to live, you got to die. Right? You want peace, you have to surrender. You want to gain, you have to, you have to sacrifice. You want to get, you got to give. The kingdom of God is upside down. In fact, Jesus brings this statement up again as Josh Beale taught two weeks ago in Matthew 8 and in Luke 9. He says, if anyone wishes to follow me, he says, come and follow me. Let's go. But this time he says things like, foxes have holes. The birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You see, oftentimes people came to Jesus with an expectation of how their lives should look like if they followed him. This is what my life should look like, Lord, if I follow you. You see, in this scripture, Jesus is not saying that all Christians will be homeless and poor. In fact, some of his followers were really wealthy people. But Jesus is saying that following me will not always result in a comfortable lifestyle. In fact, he's telling this scribe that even animals have their own place to stay, and I don't. And yet Jesus made it very clear to them that life isn't found in what you have, but who you have. I'm going to say that one more time. Life is not found in what you have, but who you have. And the question he would ask all of us tonight is, what is your purpose in following me? Is it to get me and only me, or is it to get something from me? And when you get that something and that life that I have for you is not the life you expected, will you continue to be my disciple? That's what he's asking. He then moves on to say things like those who've put their hand to the plow and look back are not fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying it is impossible to plow a field when you're constantly looking backwards. In fact, your feet will only move towards the direction you're looking. You see, some people came to Jesus with expectations and others, they still had reservations. Although Jesus threw out the invitation to follow him, their hearts were still torn between two worlds. 
Jesus would often, Jesus would use this illustration of a farmer plowing a field because it was the first step before planting. People would plow the field to dig up the weeds and what would happen is it would bring all the fresh nutrients up to the ground and that's when they would plant their seed. You see, what Jesus is saying here is I'm about to do something new in your life. Get ready. Get ready. And for this to take place, it begins by surrendering your field over to me. Not just a portion of your field. I want the entire thing. Jesus is not in the business of sharing property. This is a picture of our hearts. But I believe in this passage, he's even speaking to those of us who've been following him, who've been running with him, who've been walking with him. When he says not to look back, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a warning. Jesus is saying your previous life has nothing to offer you except the temptation to go back to it. When I went to the pig rows two weeks ago, one of the pastors gave the sermon at the end of the sermon, um, at the end of the pig rows, um, and he said that he began well. Pastor, 25 years. He was a senior pastor over a church in California, over a Calvary chapel. But then this is what he said. I decided to go, more do, I decided to go and do more research in the world. He called it research. And if you were to ask him what he found, he would probably tell you nothing. We know this because he came back. See, a lot of people wrestle with the temptation that they are missing out on something this day or today or as you walk with the Lord. I know this because it was the first lie in the garden. Jesus is saying the only thing you were missing was a life that didn't have me in it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, I am the very thing you have been looking for and now that you find me, don't look back. Don't look back. You see, a lot of people follow Jesus throughout the gospel, but their purpose and reason for following him laid underneath the banner of what they believed about him. And this would be a problem. Because in this previous chapter, in John chapter 6, as soon as the sayings got hard or times got tough or uh, they didn't give him, he didn't give them what they wanted, these people who followed Jesus for quite some time says that they turned around and went back to their own lives. You can read that in John chapter 6, 66. John 6, 6, 6. It says many of his disciples no longer followed him. And these were people with, and these have been people, his disciples have been following him for about a couple years now. And so one of the things I would like us to remember tonight is this. If we get anything out of this, this is a long, it's thick, but I'm going to try to breeze through it. If we remember anything is this, what we believe about Jesus will affect the way that we follow Jesus. I'm going to say this again. What we believe about Jesus will affect the way that we follow Jesus. And so in this chapter, a little bit of context, there is a debate among the people about who Jesus was. That's what's going on here. Not only were the religious leaders seeking him, but everyone was concerned about him. Everybody. Like he was the talk of Jerusalem. And although he was well known and a lot of people knew him, not everyone truly, know, uh, not everyone truly knew who he was. We see this happening in verse 12. If you look at verse 12, where it says the people at this feast, it says here that they grumbled among themselves. You see, this word grumbled means that they had an argument. These people had a debate uh, this people had a debate about who Jesus was and his identity. And so because of this, what started to happen is that it started to create a division. It began to separate people into certain groups. They were landing in different camps because everyone had their own beliefs about him. This is what was happening at this feast. You know, Jesus said that this would happen in Matthew chapter 10. He said, I didn't come this time to bring peace into this world but a sword. But Isaiah says that he is the prince of peace. 
You see, Jesus did come to bring peace, but that peace was between God and man, not man and man. The sword was a weapon that was used to cut. That's what they do. It cuts. Swords separate. Swords were meant to divide. And Jesus knew that his time on earth would begin to create a division between a lot of people. You see, this crowd in John chapter 7 had many different opinions about who Jesus was. But in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus breaks it down for us. He says there's only two camps. There's only two set of people, those who believe in me and those who don't. There's nothing in the middle. He's saying you either follow me or you don't. You either love me or you don't. There's only two kinds of people in this world, believers and unbelievers, saved and unsaved. And Jesus wants his disciples, the one who are following him now, who are about to take the torch, he wants them to know that not everyone will love the truth. In fact, they'll hate it. You know, even though I do what I do today, most of my family members want nothing to do with Jesus. Nothing. They love that everything is going great with me now, but they just don't want anything to, with, to do with Jesus. Like, that's good for you. You just continue doing that. And we see this even with his own brothers and sisters if you look at the previous verses. But this doesn't mean we stop caring for those who aren't saved or we stop caring for those and loving on those um, that we know who are still lost and haven't come to Jesus yet, it just means that we're on two different paths. I had a thought. I had a thought, I lost it. Never mind, let's move on. Never mind. That's it. And so here in this chapter, if you would look with me, we don't just see a division, but we see why they're divided. We see in verse 12, if you look at me again, it's because everyone had a different belief about Jesus. It says here that some of them believed him to be a good man. Do you see that, verse 12? Some of them believed him to be a good man, and some of them believed him to be a deceiver, one who leads people astray. I just want to say here that believing in Jesus to only be a good man, listen to me, is just as wrong as not believing in, believing in him at all. Well, how can you say that, Pastor David? I'll tell you why. Because if you believe Jesus to only be a great teacher, if you believe Jesus to only be a great communicator, someone with moral values, then that's all you'll see him to be. And then my question would be to you, then what separates Jesus from any great teacher? What separates Jesus from any moral person or any great leader that you look up to in your life? You see, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about the word of God being living and active. The writer compares God's word to a double-edged sword, cuts both ways, both to the listener and the teacher. What this is simply saying is, um, as I prepare and study the word of God, and as I give you, and as I, as I teach the word of God, it not it's not only just for you guys, but it is for me as well. It cuts both ways. This message is for me. But more importantly, like we discussed earlier, the sword was meant to separate. The sword was meant to divide. Except this time, the word of God, the, the sword represents the word of God. And it wasn't just meant to divide the believer and unbeliever. No, it says that the word of God pierces. It divides both soul and spirit. It divides joint and marrow. It judges the intentions and the attitudes of the heart. This means there will be times when we come into this place and the word of God will begin to challenge our beliefs. Let me say this again. There will be times when we come into this place and the word of God will begin to challenge our beliefs. Like, sex is safe for the marriage bed, guys. That's what the word says. God created only male and female. I know there's a lot of confusion going on today. 
You know, when I first came to the Lord, I thought the only issue I had was drugs and girls. <laughs> Sorry, babe. <laughs> I thought the only issue that I had was drugs and girls. You know, if I thought if I just got over that hill, I'd be like the Apostle Paul. But later on, the Lord would show me that there are a lot of things in my life that he was still working out even right now. Like the Holy Spirit is ruthless. Ruthless. Still working some stuff out in my life. I had no idea it was there. And to be honest, it doesn't always feel good to get called out, called out by the Lord. I know that. But the Bible also says that he chastens the ones that he loves. And so the issue here isn't what's being pointed out in my life. I, we, that happens all the time. The issue is what I do with it. Oftentimes, Jesus will meet us in the mess and show us that this is how life was meant to be lived. That's why we come here. But if I just see him as any other good person or any great teacher and I bring him down to that level, then that's all of the authority I've given him. On Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, as we come here, he's just a person who gives me good advice. Or he gives me good counsel. Someone who helps me as long as it lines up with what I believe in. But as soon as it doesn't, or we start to disagree on things, then at that point, let me ask you this, what would stop me from picking and choosing what Jesus tells me to do and not to do? What would stop me from only taking in the things that line up with my desires and throw out the ones that don't? See, this is what we see today in progressive Christianity. When everything, everything is allowed and people are accepted just the way they are. You know, I say this quote by Tim Keller all the time, and gosh, he's like the Jedi in the faith, but like he says, if your God, the God that you worship, never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And so the question for us tonight is, who do you believe Jesus to be? Is he just a good man? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a healer? You see, for the people at this feast, this was the hottest topic. It started to create a division among groups. And everyone in this place had a different opinion about him. Everyone. But for all of us here, right now, it doesn't matter what other people believe in. It doesn't matter what other people believe about Jesus. The only thing that matters right now is what you believe about Jesus. This is one of the most important questions you can ask yourself. And maybe some of us here grew up knowing that Jesus is God. I did. Then let me ask you this. Is he the God of your life? C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that Jesus is who he claims to be or he's not. He wrote, Jesus is who he claims to be or he's not. And at the end of his argument, after looking through every miracle, after looking through every teaching, every claim, and every time Jesus forgave sin in the gospel, Lewis came to the point that there was enough evidence for this claim that Jesus made. Too much evidence. So now the problem wasn't whether he was God or not. He knew Jesus was God. The problem is that it only leaves us with two choices. And these two choices is we either accept him or we reject him. There was nothing in the middle. And for the rest of this chapter, that's what Jesus is doing. Not only was he teaching the crowd about the kingdom of God, but he is also claiming to be the king. And so we pick it up again in verse 14 where it says, Jesus went up to the 
temple to teach. I need some water. Excuse me. It says in verse 14, But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. Now, we don't know what message or what sermon Jesus gave to this crowd. It could have been the Sermon on the Mount. could have been one of the parables. But we know it must have been good because it says in verse 15 that the Jews were astonished. You see, this word, astonished, means they were taken back. They were surprised. They were amazed about the teachings of Jesus. That's what this means. The fact is, they could not believe that someone with no credentials, never went to rabbi university, could teach the word of God this way. Well, Jesus points out that it's not just about education, as we're about to see, but relationship. I'm going to say this again. Jesus points out that it's not just about education, but it's a relationship. It's not just about what you know, it's about who you know. He says in verse 16, again, if you would look with me, that the teachings... He says, sorry, that my teachings are not mine, but his who sent me. In Matthew 7, the crowd knew that Jesus spoke, it says, as one with authority and not as the scribes. They say this because the Pharisees and the teachers, the religious leaders of this day, would often quote and teach other rabbis what other rabbis taught. So it was just pass down teachings and they would just speak what other teachers used to teach. Listen, there is nothing wrong with taking sermons and commentaries for yourself. I do it all the time. Like that's why they're there. There's nothing wrong with listening to other teachers and preachers. But I just want to tell you right now, I say this all the time, the same Holy Spirit that lives in those people that you listen to lives inside of you. There is nothing more joyful, nothing more exciting, nothing more uh, heart-stirring or affection-stirring than you opening up the Word of God and God speaking directly to you. Nothing. It's a call to open up your Word. Read the Word. And he'll speak to you. And this is important. So important. Because not only does God want to speak to you, he wants to speak through you. You see, as the Pharisees criticized Jesus for not having any credentials, the same thing happened to Peter and John in the book of Acts. It says that the religious leaders seen their boldness. He seen their boldness. And he perceived that they were uneducated and untrained. It says that they seen them as common men. This is the same scenario that's happening here in this chapter. And so I did a word study on this word common or untrained in the Greek, and it, it, it came out to idiotes. Idiotes? This is where we get the word idiots. Now today, that word idiot has a very negative connotation to it. But back then, this word, it just meant unlearned. Not very educated. One who is unskilled. And so you could say, as they met with Peter and John, this religious sect, they knew that they were in the presence of two idiots. They're going to probably punch me when I get up there. <laughs> but Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Listen to me. I love you guys. God loves using the ones who are overlooked. The nobodies. The nobodies. The weak. The feeble. The small the uneducated, the untrained. I know if a message goes well or something amazing happens here, I know for sure it wasn't me because I had nothing to bring to the table in the first place. Listen, I'm going to be real with you. I barely graduated high school. 
my two gifts in life is holding my breath and shooting fish. Like, that's it. And yet God would pick a bunch of fishermen to turn this world upside down for his kingdom. But it doesn't end there. See, not only did they see that they were untrained or uneducated men, but it says that they knew Peter and John have been with Jesus. It says they knew that. They knew that Peter and John have been with Jesus. The most important thing in this life is your relationship with God. That's it. Jesus would stress to us that your relationship is far more powerful than any type of education. Now, don't get me wrong. Education is good, but power does not come from what you know, but who you know. Now, as we look at verse 17, Jesus switches from doctrine to character. Jesus is saying, if you don't believe my words, as it says in 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. Jesus is saying in this verse, if you don't believe my words, because I don't have any credentials, or I didn't go to Southern Baptist uh, University, or I didn't go to theological seminary, then why don't you try following me? That's what he's saying. If you don't believe my words, then why don't you try following me? See if what I'm saying is true or not. You see, these Pharisees came here to see Jesus, but not only to see him, but to hear him. They came to see and hear what Jesus had to say, but they had no intentions in following him. None. Not at all. You see, coming to Jesus is one thing. Believing in him is another. Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to him must believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him. The religious leaders came to Jesus, but they had no intentions to believe in Jesus. None at all. Anybody here a follower of Jesus? Do you always obey him? <laughs> like, how do you follow somebody you don't obey, right? Listen, this question is never used to condemn or to shame anyone. It is used to open our eyes to the reality of how we approach the faith every day. Like nobody, okay, I'm checking this out. Nobody has ever told me that God's timing wasn't ever perfect, right? Like God's timing is always perfect. Like I have never heard anybody say I shouldn't have trusted God in this season. I should have done my own thing. Never. Rather, people are like, I should have trusted God in this season instead of doing my own thing. And so the saying goes like this, you cannot give up on a Jesus that you've never tried. You cannot. You cannot give up on a Jesus that you've never tried. You want to know if my words are true, he's saying, come and see for yourself. Follow me. Like I have seen way too many lives radically changed and transformed and renewed way too many. And for me to hear that this Jesus thing is not working is on them. It's on them. Amen? And so if you look at your Bibles from verse 19 to 24, I'm going to get through this. 19 to 24, Jesus begins to have a conversation with the religious leaders about the Sabbath. Now, I didn't want to go too far into this. Maybe you know, maybe you don't. 
The reason why they wanted to kill Jesus is because in their, eyes, not, in their eyes, not only was he claiming himself to be God, but he broke that day of rest. You see, God, in their eyes, you see, God told the nation of Israel to stop working one day out of the, be- uh, out of the week. This was the Sabbath. This day was meant to be a day of rest. But importantly, more importantly, it was a day that was dedicated to God. You see, what happened over time is the, re- is the religious leaders began to build rules within the commandments, all of them, like 613 of them. They built rules within the commandments, and rather this day becoming a blessing for the people, it became a burden. It's like you coming into this church and me telling you that there's only one way to dress, one translation, I love you, Mitch, one translation, one style of music, one way to do things, and if it's not that way, then you're not saved. You're not. Or you're sinning against God. It was the type of legalism that was happening. And so Jesus begins to say to them that you allowed someone to be circumcised on the eighth day here in this verse, even if it falls on the Sabbath. You see, what God forbid this day was work. And this was a type of work. But he says, you are angry with me because I made a man whole. Jesus healed a crippled man um, at the pool of Bethesda. 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 What he's actually trying to say in this verse is you are willing to break the law because of mutilation, but not for mercy. And all Jesus was trying to point out in this chapter and in John chapter 5, so we just get the gist, is that God desires mercy over mutilation. What he's saying is God's love, God's grace, and God's mercy is not bound to any days of the week. And so we thank God that when we call upon him, he's not snoozing. He's not ever taking a rest. And so for the rest of this chapter, it's this huge debate or this huge concern about the identity of Jesus. And again, because time is running short, my question for you tonight is who do you believe Jesus to be? It's a question that you have to ask yourself. He's either God or he's not. You either reject him or you don't. There was nothing in the middle. Lewis came to this conclusion, and I hope that we come to this conclusion tonight. Here's a little bit of context of this chapter, or context context of what's going on. You see, what happened for seven days at the feast, at this feast, the uh, Feast of Weeks, is that not only would they camp out in tents because they were... uh, Um, remembering their time or their pilgrimage through the wilderness. But what would happen for seven days at this feast is that the priests would grab a pitcher of water and pour it all over the altar. So for seven days, he would grab a pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam and he would pour it on the water. It was to remind Israel of of, of how God provided water in the wilderness. And so for seven days, he would do this. But it was on the last day, on the eighth day, the priests wouldn't do that. But it was on this day, the last day of the feast, Jesus would cry out to everyone who was listening, and he doesn't know who was listening. He says this in verse 38, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Anyone. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You see, the children of Israel were going to die in the wilderness without having anything to drink. It was said that as Moses struck the rock, God then provided water for them. You see, this, is what, this was a picture of what Jesus came to do. 
His time is running short, and as he would set his face towards Jerusalem and ultimately towards the cross, it is Jesus who would be struck down on our behalf. He was the rock. It is because of his sacrifice we get to receive the outpouring of his salvation. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus came for you, not the person next to you, for you? Do you believe that Jesus came to die for your sins? Not your uncle's sins, not your mom's sins, not your dad's sins, your sins. And do you believe that he rose again? This is something you have to constantly decide for yourself. I hope you decide now. I mean, I hope you make this decision now. It's a one-time deal. He died for your sins, past, present, and future. You've been fully and freely forgiven. You see, in this chapter, the living water that Jesus talks about is the Holy Spirit. He promises the Holy Spirit to everyone who believes in him. This means that when you put your faith into Jesus, you don't just get heaven, you don't just get eternal life, you don't just get blessings, you get him. You get him. Now, what would life be like without the creator? And what would heaven be like without its savior? Amen? Amen. Father, we bless your holy name tonight. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. God, I pray that as we go out this week, Lord God, that we would meditate on this verse and that we would constantly submit to the fact that you are God and we're not. But in that, we would realize that your plans are always good for us, Lord. Always good. And so help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to submit to your will and to your work. I pray that you would light a fire within this congregation here tonight, Lord God, to not only proclaim and herald the good news and preach the gospel of your Son, but also to live out a life that is pleasing to you. And so I praise you, God, for your love and your grace and your mercy that follows us all the days of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.